Greetings, folks, and welcome to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I'm your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 60 years, my passion has been everything aviation and airplanes. For half my adult life, I flew KC-135s. And on this show, we're going to interview some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts that I came in contact during those 60 years. And today, we're going to talk to one of those uh, great people that I worked with when I was living in Okinawa, Japan. Special thanks to the sponsor of this show, Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. Lessons from the Cockpit investigates some of the tactics, techniques, and procedures these aviators created or cultivated during those extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and private flying operations. Our exploration gives our listeners practical advice on how does the aviation world work and expands critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. Many of the stories that you hear on our show are being told for the very first time. On today's show, my guest is Lieutenant Colonel, retired, Joe Kataszynski, call sign Taz, one of my best friends. And he's gonna tell us some of his lessons learned from flying F-15s and being one of the strategists for the surge in Iraq. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in. And let's begin this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit with my good friend, Taz. We're old men now. <laughs> oh, I know, man. Look at that. Gray hair and all. Yeah. Gray hair and all, man. <laughs> man, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This is great. You bet. You bet. Thanks for asking me. This is an honor. I'm really uh, happy to be here. Well, you and I go back a long way when both of us had hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's been... Uh, Almost 30 years, I think, right? 93? Yeah. 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 1993, brother. Yep. Can you believe that, man? Not a whole lot's changed over those years either, has it? No, unfortunately. <laughs> we've, gotten, we've gotten a little wiser, hopefully. Well, yeah. thanks for inviting me, Sluggo. This, uh, this is an honor and a pleasure. I really mean it. This is, this is great. Well, you know, I appreciate you picking the time. Really, really informative. I mean, you're sharing some stories and telling some things that are really important. As I meet a bunch of airmen, I talk to captains at my airline, and I've talked with this 8th Air Force World War II veteran the other day. What a great guy. Oh, what a great gosh. guy. He, they all kind of say the same thing. No one really tells the story. This is, a, this is an 8th Air Force World War II veteran said, I went to war with these guys. We were blood brothers. And then all of a sudden, we, we got thrown together ad hoc. We flew these missions. We went home, and that was it. And we all came back home and said, what did we just do? You know? <laughs> No, when you and I came back from Desert Storm, it was the same thing. What did I just get myself involved with? What did I just do? Yep. You're flying the Eagle. And I mean, to think about that, Taz, I didn't even know you were covering us on one of our missions. Yeah. When we were up there pulling those F-16s out and covering Devin Jones pickup. Mm -hmm. I had no idea you guys were even there. Yeah. The wax didn't tell us, you know, and we're all kind of nervous because we're kind of deep inside of Iraq covering all this, doing what we had to do. That mission took a long time. It did. It was interesting because toward the end of it, we're still in Iraq. We're covering Devin Jones's pickup. For all the listeners, Devin Jones and his Rio got shot down on an F-14 the night before. The Rio gets picked up by the Iraqis and we pick up Devin Jones. And it's mm -hmm. a really incredible story of, of how that happened. 
Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, man, I, we're kind of hanging it out up here. There's no F-15s around. And yet Taz is above us at what were you like 32,000 feet? We're down. Yeah. We were down in the 21 to 22 block, if I remember right. Yeah, we, we, we swept north. There were some Sandys clearing out the area. Uh, they took out an armored column of, uh, I think, armored infantry going after one of the survivors. Yeah, P.J. Johnson. Yeah, then they got lit up by, uh, it was a mobile SAM. I, I don't know if it was an SA-8 or what, but uh, they got lit up with something. The Pavlos got in there and got the, got the survivor, and that was, that was huge. But that, oh. that mission seemed to take forever. I remember thinking, <laughs> oh, we went to the tanker two or three times as the, as the payload helicopters are going in for the pickup at the time, it just seemed like it took forever. Of course, you know, your eyeballs are out looking around waiting mm-hmm. for any threat, but yeah, that day there were no air to air threats, just surface to air threats, but we got them out. That was, that was quite a mission. That was awesome. Well, and you know, the thing Taz that we had to do there was we were still refueling the weasels and mm-hmm. then the A-10s needed gas. And so we went into this big wagon wheel, like you saw us, okay? So yeah. one guy could slow down and get the hogs. A couple of us could stay fast and refuel the weasels because they flowed back into Iraq also. Yeah. And that mission was purely ad hoc. I, I wrote about it in the book. Are it you was. guys coming in to fly? Yes, we're coming to fly. Your yeah. mission's canceled. You're doing this now. And I was like, okay, here we go. It was you know, ad hoc. Going into Iraq to pick up F-16s that didn't get pre-strike refueled. And the thing was, is I had my camera with me on the cockpit floor Mm -hmm. and my co-pilot had his video camera with him. So we, we took pictures of this thing and video of this thing like crazy. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, that was quite awesome. (laughs) If you and I get going like this, man, this is going to take all night. (laughs) It's all right. Like I said, you know, I'm glad you're telling these stories because that eighth Air Force World War II veteran, uh, Freddie Bichetti, U.S. Bomber uh, Crew 2366, that was his bomber crew number, B-24 Bombardier. He said, we're not telling the story. So he's he wants to talk about it. He still has his mind. He's 98 years old. He's really sharp. And well, we got to get him on. I'm going to meet with him. It's going to be hard. He's hard to get a hold of, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll ambush him once. Uh, when we'll, I go figure see get him on. we'll figure out how to get yeah. him on. What a great what a great guy, though. You know, what a, what a great American. And he see, said he was only 20 years old at the time. No, that's the thing. There are all these young guys going into combat like this, flying in airplanes like B-24s with, what, like 10 guns in them and stuff like that, trying to shoo away all the ME-109s, the Focke-Wolf 190s, you know, all these things that are going on. Right. And then live to tell about it and live good long lives, for crying out loud, you know? Yeah, he served, well, he went, he was in Europe from May of 1944 through... uh, late August, early September of 44. And at that time you had to complete 35 missions Uh and you were uh, sent home. Not everyone on the crew completed the missions. The uh, flight engineer had a nervous breakdown and had to go to uh, an institution uh, after going on a raid over Berlin. So they lost him. Their navigator was killed. He decided that he was a really good navigator. So the bomb group wanted him there and he Mm -hmm. stayed on for a bunch of other missions and he, he was killed on one of them. Uh, but the rest of the crew made it back home. It's quite a story. I mean, these guys are just amazing. They had to bail out once because they were above the weather and they didn't have instruments to land. <laughs> uh, they had to find a hole in the clouds. The pilot at the time didn't think they were going to be able to go through the weather, so he ordered everybody to bail out. Freddie's a 20-year-old bombardier telling everybody on the crew how to put on the uh, the parachute <laughs> to bail out. And he oh he looked at me and laughed. He says, can you believe that? Here I am, 20 years old. 
telling these bomber crew, my bomber crewmen how to bail out, but the, the co-pilot and captain stayed with the airplane. They were able to find a hole through the weather and they got it back safely. So they didn't have to bail out, but they did on that mission. So it's a pretty interesting story talking to this guy. And he didn't and, think he was going to make it. He was, he did not think he was going to make it. And and think about this, Taz. You're a captain in 737s right now, moving yeah. up here pretty soon. You're also an aero engineer too. Think about the difference between the instruments he was flying with and the instruments you are flying with. They don't have ILS. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. The multifunction displays that we have now give us incredible information. The advanced visuals on the thing, you know, where, you're, where you can see the ground and everything. We don't have HUDs in our fleet, but uh, there are HUDs. Yeah. Golf streams where there's an infrared uh infrared look through the HUD and you can actually see through the weather. You can they, see they have it on the uh, captain side. Okay. And Rockwell Collins makes that stuff. And I mm -hmm. remember going into the sim and playing with that in Aspen, Colorado. That's where they train guys on this in snowy weather in Aspen, Colorado, because you're surrounded by mountains. Mr. Approach procedure is like crazy. And if you don't follow it, you hit a mountain. Here you are like eight, nine miles out from the runway. And there it is right there in front of you on a piece of glass with all the terrain around you, all the buildings around you, crazy mm -hmm. stuff, crazy yeah, stuff, man. We've come a long way. There's no we doubt. Have. We have come a long way. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. I think the, um, the latest upgrades with the touchscreen displays, yeah, ADSB in and out that we have now has really revolutionized the industry really. And the, the iPad now you can't fly without your iPad. I mean, if you don't have an iPad in the airlines, you, you have to get one. You know, it's not, you can't ML that iPad. You have to get an iPad to do it. Uh, that tells you how long, how far we've come. It's it's pretty amazing. It, it's it's a really for me, flying in the airlines right now is it's it's been a pleasure. I flew you know a thousand hours over the past two years throughout the pandemic. I've seen the the world literally the world change. Yeah, and yeah from, from an airman's perspective, it's been yeah, uh, it's been interesting. I did not expect to fly combat missions uh, for the airlines, but we ended up doing. <laughs> Somewhere because people were <laughs> people were scared, Sluggo. I'm telling you, people were scared. But one of the most illuminating things I remember deplane the airplane at Dulles, and I'm walking to the the, uh, the train, the subway train, whatever. And uh, an FBI agent walks up to me. There's FBI agents quite often. Oh, yeah. We fly, yeah, they're everywhere. But he came up to me, he looks at me, and goes, "I really admire your courage." I said, "Aren't you an FBI agent?" He goes, "Yeah." I said, "Why are you telling me this? Because you're flying throughout this pandemic." And I really admire that. And this is an FBI agent, a law enforcement officer. Yeah. That blew me away. I did not expect that. So I've had people come up to me totally unsolicited and think as a pilot flying the, in the, the airlines at the time. And um, it's been interesting. We've, we've flown a lot of vaccines all over the world. One of the more interesting uh, flights, there's a flight, from, I think I told you this, from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. We only had two or three passengers. This was in the middle of the pandemic, June of 2020. Mm -hmm. No one was flying, but we loaded the airplane up with produce from Hawaii. There were, there were cases of cilantro. You know what cilantro is? You put it on oh, your yeah. And that airplane yeah. smelled great. They loaded the overhead bins with cilantro. Cases <laughs> of cilantro were everywhere. The, under, the belly cargo was full of cilantro. We took off like a rocket because we were so light. We had one or two passengers in first class. That was one of the more memorable flights. We didn't see, we didn't see anyone on TCAS from San Francisco to Washington Dulles. Not a single hit. 
And if I remember right, Cleveland Center was shut down at the time because some of their radar, their high altitude controllers had, they popped positive for COVID. But yeah. it was really a strange, I mean, it was like the Twilight Zone flying through all that. But I'm glad I did it. And uh, we stayed safe. We had procedures in place to keep us from getting sick. Yeah. And I know I probably had it two or three times. I never <laughs> tested positive because I didn't feel that bad where I had to go. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure I had it. I, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just don't yeah. know for sure. What you don't know won't hurt you. Yeah. But these are great stories you're telling, Slogo. I mean, we got to get the word out on uh, aviation. In my opinion, I think it, it's a it's a great thing. It, well, it's, and you know. see, I, I want to focus. The reason I wanted, I did this was because of guys like you and me that have all of this aviation experience, particularly in your case, because you're an aero engineer, you flew F-15s, you've been flying since you were a kid, went into the airlines, you were planning missions as a joint partner with our guys in Baghdad. And so you have all this joint experience too. So it's not just for the airplanes, but it's also for guys that are still in the military doing stuff. But particularly, a lot of that applies to just business, dealing with your business partners and your customers. And that's why I did this. I want to take all of this knowledge that guys like Freddie has and pass it down like pay it forward to people that are just coming up. I got yeah. to talk to a aviation school, ground school the other day down in uh, Salem. It was all these young high school kids that are, oh my gosh, you know, what is it like flying airplanes? And I remember telling them, you guys are coming into the aviation industry at absolutely the best time, probably in the world's history, because we're going to yeah. need 600,000 pilots, according to this article I read between now in 2030. You guys will be gainfully employed for a long time. Guys like you and me need to take all of this stuff we got in our heads Mm -hmm. and do the Vulcan mind meld with these guys. And that was the reason I created this podcast to focus on. Here's the story. Here's what I learned from it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great podcast. You mentioned that I'm an aerospace engineer. I have an aerospace engineering degree, but I'm a pilot with an engineering degree. Now, I go yeah. to an airport and fly sailplanes, and there are rocket scientists and really, no kidding, NASA engineers. They're brilliant engineers with a pilot's license. So there's a difference between being a pilot with an aerospace engineering degree and, an aerospace <laughs> with a, pilot's license. and a rocket scientist with a... I want to let people know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pilot with a, you know aero engineering degree, because at the time... When I was going to the University of Kansas, uh, that was what the Air Force wanted. They wanted pilots with an engineering degree. So that's why I went into the aerospace engineering field. And I'm glad I did. It was illuminating. The, the professors there at the time were brilliant. One man, uh, he's still alive, Dr. Jan Roskam, who was a, a student of Dr. Uh, Theodore von Karman, who's the famous aerodynamicist from World War II. Yeah, you and I have talked about him before. Yeah, he was one of von Karman's students. And boy, this... Uh, Dr. Roskin was absolutely brilliant. He was our stability and control engineer. I learned so much from him. I'm still learning about stability and control uh, at different uh, different phases of flight in the airline industry and flying. Um, you and know, different flying. aspects of our life. It's been a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Hey, do you want to ask me some questions about? Yeah, I do. Okay. Stuff? Let's go back in our history a little bit. All right. Kim Il-sung dies, and we're capping on the DMZ. You remember that? Yeah. You told me that that was one of the few times you actually went master arm on in the airplane. 
against, uh, I think it was a fish bed or something like that. Why don't you relate that story and some of the lessons that we learned that you learned from being on a hot border, mm-hmm. looking across because right now our guys in Poland, maybe other parts of Europe are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, that wasn't in North, that wasn't near the DMZ in North Korea. This was uh, in uh, desert shield. The, the, okay. The desert storm. I didn't come real close to getting an engagement. There was a guy in our squadron called muscles Mahoney. He was uh, one of our fighter pilots at the time. And he came really close. He armed hot um, and uh, took on a couple of big 29s that almost crossed the border in the Saudi Saudi airspace at the time. During my uh, Gulf war one experience, I armed hot and chased two MiG 29s into um, Iran. We were escorting a strike package into Baghdad middle of the day, broad daylight. Yeah. River joint said, Hey, you got a couple guys 40 miles to your East about to take off two MiG 29s. They'll be airborne in one minute. You need to vector East. So we did. And sure enough, there were the MiG 29s and they were on a, uh, we had a, um, an intercept going, we were heading about zero nine zero. The MiGs were heading to about three, four, zero, three, three, zero. They were in close formation. And as soon as I lit them up with my radar, I armed hot. I didn't have a weapon solution yet. I was uh, cleared to kill, but they turned and I was happy to get them to turn because I did not want to, you know, I didn't want to get those guys anywhere close to this strike package that was going in. Yeah. I think about maybe 60, there were a lot of airplanes. There were about 60 F-16s in this one particular strike. But yeah, we got them to turn and I just wanted to moonwalk my way back to the strike package, keeping my radar on them as chased them into Iran. And we went all the way out to uh, over Basra and I looked down and I saw the Republican BART guard divisions below me, 10,000 feet below me as I chased these MiGs. The MiGs were at treetop level, literally at treetop level going as fast as they can go. We were happy to get rid of them. I looked down after almost crossing into Iranian airspace and there was these Republican guard divisions southwest of Basra. And I still can't believe Slugger to this day, they didn't shoot up at us. They didn't shoot Sam's at our, uh, (laughs) and the only thing I'm thinking is maybe they were weapons type because they knew they had friendlies in the air. I'm still blown away by that. Now, I know it's hard to see when you're getting shot at in the daytime. You don't see the muzzle flashes of the AAA. You don't see the tracer rounds coming up at you like you do at night. Yeah. A SAM, you don't see the big. When a SAM comes up at you, there's a big glow of light, and this thing starts to snake its way up toward you. You can see that at night. But in the daytime, it's pretty tough to see things uh, if they're coming up at you. But we weren't lit up, to the best of my knowledge, and we were able to get back get our strike strikers into the target area and uh, go back home. But that, that was the only time, another time I armed hot and the MiG-23 actually crashed probably 30 miles in front of us. We don't know why he just hit the desert and blew up, but we didn't fire at him. But those are the only two times I armed hot wow. to engage you know, enemy fighters. So I mean, there was a lot of guys that did a lot more than me. I was just a Lieutenant wingman uh, doing my job, but there were other guys that did a lot more heroic stuff in that war. It was quite an experience. A lot of guys did a lot of good work. I was just one of them that happened to be there. But think about our guys that are in Poland now flying caps, man. They're going through the same mental process you were going through, you know? Okay. The other day I was talking to a Viper guy, Pig Fleischman. He said, you know, I had to pull off a guy because if I had hit him with the missile, he would have fallen in the fly zone. Okay. And it would have caused an international incident. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw today, Zelensky was talking to Congress and he's going, we need a no-fly zone. We need a no-fly zone. We need a no-fly zone. And I'm like going, Shh. you know, oh. yeah. 
this is uh, this is an interesting time. This is the Cold War all over again. This is 1950 Korea. You know, Korea, yeah. the North Korean army just came south of the 38th parallel and pushed our boys all the way to Pusan into the Pusan perimeter. This is what's happening, in my opinion, anyway, in Ukraine right now. And it's it's just a tragedy. A bit of good news. The last captain I flew with, a guy named Captain Jones. Great guy. Uh-huh. Uh, you got to talk to this guy. He married a Ukrainian woman. His mother-in-law w- w- was living in Ukraine. And this was early January. And I said, Chris, what, uh, you know, what's going on? You know, is your mother-in-law still in, in Ukraine? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was very confident at the time that Putin would not invade Ukraine, yeah. saber-rattling, because he had the Crimea. And what Chris told me was, he's got the Crimea. He doesn't need anything else. I don't think he's going to invade. Well, sure enough, two weeks later, he invaded, right? So, yeah. but I got some good news from him today. He said, my mother-in-law just arrived in uh, rest in Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. She oh, was Poland. And this is a woman in her 70s. She was able to escape to Poland, get to the U.S. consulate in Krakow. They were able to get her to the U.S. on a visa. So that was good news. When I heard that, I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Good. That is awesome. So that's one. uh, I was worried about his mother-in-law for a while there. Even though I never met the lady, I still I was feeling for my uh, my crewmate there. Yeah. So there's some good things. Taz, talk about your work as a strategist for the surge. Oh, the surge Um, in Iraq? Yeah. So explain a little bit what that was, what your job was and relate to us here. Here's what it's like working with all these different agencies in order to make the plan come together. I was there for uh, two deployments. The one in 05, I was on the ground in Baghdad at the uh, Baghdad International Airport. I was the OSS commander at the time. And then we worked closely with the 3rd Infantry Division. Uh, from 05 to 06. And that was at the Baghdad airport. That was quite an experience. I got to know the guys from third ID, great Americans, all of them. You know, I was so frustrated in the way the war was being conducted at that, uh, just keeping the APOD, the airport, aerial port of uh, deparkation, we call them APODs, keeping the uh, C5s and C17s and C130s flowing in and out of Baghdad was really important came up with a great concept at the tactical level, at that airbase level, and we maximized the throughput and uh, we had more passengers and cargo ever uh, by the end of our tour, uh, by some of the, the methods we use. So I was still frustrated. So I said, you know, this is stupid, but I'm going to go back for another year to the CAOC because this surge in Iraq is coming up and I, I want to see if I can apply some of these lessons learned at the at a higher level of war at the operational level in the Combined Air Operations Center with ninth air force forward. So I did that. And, um, that was, uh, there was so much going on at that time. So much going on. I learned that he, you needed persistent, uh, surveillance over the battlefield. Uh, you need a persistent surveillance keyed with ground maneuver to be re- really highly effective. We learned this in Baghdad. And, um, how do you apply that up at the operational level? Um, great American. You need to talk to Slogo Colonel Gary Crowder, Retired U.S. Air Force. He was our AOC commander. I know Chowder. Chowder really? was working. Chowder yeah. was working in the uh, uh, Kosovo chaos. He was the strategist during Kosovo too. He's he was he's brilliant, and he's still he's still around. He worked yeah. for uh, you know General Short. He was the, General Short was a CFAC, I think, at the time you're talking about, right? So then and, and Trexler. Trexler was the deputy. Yeah, I worked for Trexler when he was Seventh Air Force. Yeah, yeah, another great guy. But the surge. Okay, so the surge in Iraq. 
you know, Gary Crowder, Chowder, and um, the strategy division guys. I was part of the strategy division in the camp. You know, how, how can we support General Petraeus, who was the commander on the ground at Multinational Force Iraq? His strategy was to clear, hold, and build in uh, Iraq. So clear out the enemy, hold the, the ground, and then build up that ground so we can transition that battle space over to the Iraqis. That was the that was the simplified strategy, clear, hold, and build. Okay, it made sense from a counterinsurgency standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the same strategy that was used in Vietnam after General Westmoreland left and General Abrams took over after the Tet Offensive. They called it something different, but it was essentially a clear, hold, and build strategy. So how do you apply air power to that? Well, Colonel Crowder was a brilliant guy. I've got the book right here. I'll show you it. The book we actually used to do this, it's called A a Better War by Lewis Sorley. A Better War. Okay. Clear, hold, and build. It talks about General Abrams and uh, what he did to secure victory. A lot of Mm -hmm. Americans don't know this, but in Vietnam, we did extremely well after the Tet Offensive. We did these, uh, the U.S. Army just did great work under General Abrams. Colonel Crowder knew that in 2007. And he said, Petraeus is using this strategy. Mm-hmm. And there's a book called A Better War by Lewis Sorley. Buy that book. Let's read it. And let's figure out how we can integrate air power into this clear, hold, and build uh, strategy. And that's what we did. To do that was really tough. You mentioned earlier about joint and combined ops, different interagencies working together with uh, different forces that only works at the speed of trust. If you don't trust the other people working in those other various components, the ground component, the naval component, the air and space component, whatever, you don't trust each other. Nothing's going to happen. Right? So you got to have people that can build relationships and build trust and earn that trust uh, by doing the right things at the right time. That's basically what we did. I mean, it was, it was tough. My first night, I'll never forget that night. We talked about it, how I was introduced to the folks at the KOC. I got a C-130 that night and went to Baghdad. I wasn't welcomed at first, but we went to, um, we started out with the air liaison officers at the division Mm -hmm. level, part of the theater air control system, the TACs, as we called it. Go to the ALOs and they can introduce you to the soldiers. And that's how we worked it. We, we We stayed within our command and control structure, got introduced to soldiers who were planning the next operation. And it was, lo and behold, it was the 3rd Infantry Division again. The same guys I knew a couple years earlier in Baghdad, they were still there. They went home and came back just like me. It was just, uh, it it all came together. Developed a clear hold and build strategy to support 3rd Infantry in the southern regions of Baghdad. The main effort was in Sadr City. First Cab was there, I think. First Cavalry was at that time in an urban fight. That was the main effort. Uh, but General Lynch, Major General Lynch, commanding general of 3rd ID at the time, really needed air power to clear out these areas south of Baghdad. So we applied this clear, hold, and build strategy developed by General Abrams and applied it to <laughs> General Lynch's problem. And uh, General North, our commanding, uh, our commanding Air Force general at the time, he was our combined force air component commander. The big boss, General Nardo. Lynch. Nardo. Yeah, yep, General Lynch and uh, General North became really good friends. They got to know each other, and uh, that's how we started the surge. We started it with Third Infantry in the south and expanded it throughout Iraq. 
and it worked really well. And we applied some of the same techniques in Afghanistan as well, uh, although that's a whole different story. That's how we fought the surge from an air power perspective. Mm-hmm. Real basically, when you do a clearing operation, you need to provide intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance of the areas you're interested in to develop an idea of what the enemy forces are doing in that area. We use the rule of thumb about, of about two weeks. And so what does that mean? Two weeks prior to ground forces moving across that terrain and clearing it out, two weeks prior, we did it what we called an ISR soak. Uh, with different sensors from different platforms in space, air breathing platforms, overhead platforms, whatever. Uh, We all integrated this intelligence and we developed an idea of what the enemy forces were doing in that area. It worked well in that context. And uh, that's that's how we fought Iraq. Clear, hold and build. All the way from uh, Marn Torch was the first Mm -hmm. operation under General Lynch. I think that started in June of 2007. Uh, just like North Africa, it was Operation Torch. Well, 3rd ID called it Marn Torch because 3rd Infantry is the rock of the Marn. Mm-hmm. So they named their operation Marn Torch. Then there was Marn Anvil. And it led up to Marn Thunderbolt, which was in January, I think, of 08. Uh, but Marn Thunderbolt was one of the last operations I helped uh, mm-hmm. plan and coordinate. Yeah, but that's how we did it. It, it was a, a big success at the time. Um, it's a shame that no one knows about, well, in my opinion, after talking with people at different stages after leaving the Air Force, after retiring, a lot of people don't know what happened in Iraq. They don't know what the ebb and flow of the, the battles were. And uh, there's a lot, there was a lot that went on there. I mean, there was a lot. And you go to the library today, last time I went to a library, you get everything online now, right? But the last time I went to a library, um, there wasn't a whole lot of books on the Iraq war. Yeah. There's a lot of books on, you know, God bless them, the uh, special forces guys, great guys. Yeah. But the conventional force side, I don't see a whole lot of written on that. So Third no. Infantry has a lot to say about what happened in Iraq. And those guys are, they're my heroes. There's no doubt. Well, and I'm sure coordinating this intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance deck with all of the different services having different assets, you had to figure out, okay, what's the best asset for this particular information that I need? Yeah. So you had to go and coordinate all of that too, with the army, with the Navy, with the guys on the ground, the special forces guys are running around gathering intelligence too. And during the invasion, they were even feeding that to us because they were telling us, okay, well, here's where his science projects are underneath the tanker tracks. I remember you telling me, that air power kind of sat on a three-legged stool. Persistent ISR, continuous joint fires, and I think the other one was, uh, excuse me, uh, persistent joint fires and consistent humanitarian operations. I think those were the three. Humanitarian operations, yeah. Is that the three? That's the three, yeah. Persistent ISR integrated fires, which can mean anything from Electronic um, or kinetic or even an illumination flare at night. That would be one way to integrate fires from a howitzer cannon, for example. Mm -hmm. And humanitarian relief operations, really any type of movement on the ground. You could call it humanitarian relief. You could call it a clearing operation with mechanized infantry. It doesn't matter. It's got to be something on the ground. It could be something at sea, but it has to be coordinated with those movements. Otherwise, ISR is just 
in my opinion, being thrown away. And there's a way to, General Lynch wasn't going to get his air power. You know, when we first got up there, we had to tell him, sir, you're just a two-star general. I'm just a lieutenant colonel, right? I just said, sir, you really need to name your operation. He goes, what do you mean name my operation? We're just going to go into the Arab Jabur district south of Baghdad and clear it out. Sir, we need to name this something because if you don't name your, your operation something, it will not be as high on the air tasking order in order of priority. priority. So if you name it yeah. something, he, he named anyway. They, they were brilliant. They named it Martin Torch. He was able to get his air power prioritized in a way that suited him and met his needs. And it was just an amazing experience. But yeah, you're right. Persistent ISR, integrated fires, ground maneuver or humanitarian relief operations. That's what the ISR, integrated fires and the Humro stuff was what we did at in Baghdad at the Baghdad International Airport, right? We did humanitarian relief. We did, we evacuated wounded civilians. We put them on medical uh, medevacs and, uh, you know, so that was our version of Humro, but we got a lot of intelligence by doing those types of things. Yeah. Uh, and that kept us safe. Those uh, soldiers out there clearing the wire, they, um, they kept us safe. Yeah. A lot of them gave their lives too, Sluggo. It was a bloody time. I stopped, let me just put it this way. I stopped counting because they would bring the, um, the soldiers that were killed in action and Marines too. MNF West was right there. The scene mm-hmm. for the Marine Corps was right there by our airfield. I stopped counting at 200. 200 dead Americans is when I stopped counting. Oh, I, just, I, I would take names and I, I took it and made a little diary of each event. The chaplain would get on board the C-130 yeah. and he'd say a prayer before sending the soldiers back to uh, Germany. But yeah, at 200, I said, this is crazy. I'm not going to keep this diary anymore. And mm-hmm. I think we lost over 350 Americans when I was there in Baghdad. So that's why I wanted to go back to the KOC a couple years later and see if I could make a difference at a, the operational level. I hope I did. I don't know. I mean, I tried. So that's all you can do, right? You know, it's amazing, too, because sometimes you don't know if you did or not. And yeah. sometimes it's like years later that you figure out, oh, wow, I was involved with that. Maybe we did make a difference. So give us a give us an example of integrated fires. When you're talking integrated fires, what does that mean to somebody that's uh, not in our business? And our listeners, when they hear that, just give them an example example of joint integrated fires. Sure. Well, I could start with a really strange example. Um, one that those are always the best ones, man. <laughs> one that you won't hear anywhere else, but probably here. Um, let me just give you an example. Baghdad, and you got to talk to some of my tower controllers that was in my squadron at the time, but they were giving clearance for takeoff for Jordanian Airways. I don't know. I think they had MD-11s at the time uh, or an Airbus. Mm-hmm. They were given clearance for a, a Jordanian Airways airliner to take off while a mile off the runway center line, right in line with runway 33 left, if I remember correctly, about a mile north of the runway, there was a, a battery of 105 millimeter howitzer uh, guns from the, the, the 10th Mountain Division. And they were firing illumination flares at night because there were obviously some clearing operations with infantry clearing out some of the areas around the airport because bad guys are out there, right? So these tower controllers are giving clearance. Jordanian Airways 101, for example, clear takeoff, runway 33 left, uh, climb, you know, runway heading, maintain 4,000, whatever. They were doing that while these guns were going off slow, So that's that's a way to integrate fires with civilian air operations. A lot of times in the military, you think about integrating fires with supporting infantry or mechanized forces on the ground or at sea. 
uh, dropping bombs on the bad guys uh, for close air support. But that's the way we integrated fires in Baghdad. We, we took that, those howitzers, we, they had to eliminate the battle space at night, and we were still able to safely you know, allow civilian air operations to continue to operate because it was important. We had to keep that airport open. We had to bring C-130s with medical supplies in while those guns were going off. Yeah, Helicopters still needed to take off and land from the airport. Uh, C-5s came in at night delivering uh, cargo. Same thing with C-17s. We had to do that. The guns had to keep firing. They had to fire. They Most yeah, of it was illumination flares, but we had 105s to the north, and uh, 3rd Infantry had uh, the big 155 howitzers to the south. So those <laughs> guns were going off. Before we got there, when there was a one illumination flare fired, all the air operations in Baghdad were shut down because of that one illumination flare. So we, we looked at this and said, we can't do this. We can't fight a war uh, just because we're firing flares. Uh, we need to figure out a way to do this. And those airmen in the, in the control tower did that. Pretty amazing how they did it. We did it, and I think it really uh, paid big dividends. So that's an, an example of integrated fires. Now, another example that we're familiar with is providing close air support to forces in, in close contact with the enemy. For example, in Afghanistan, we would have A-10s go in and strike eagles, F-15Es go in and uh, uh, drop uh, ordnance on bad guys on a mountaintop uh, while we have uh, special forces or conventional ground forces somewhere in the area close by calling in for that air support. That's the way to integrate fires in a kinetic way to support soldiers on the ground. So there, there's two ways of doing it. The weird way nobody talks about, you got, you got, a, you got guns, you got airliners, you got to keep the air, airport open, or you could drop bombs on the bad guys in a hot firefight. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, it was pretty amazing. This whole this whole concept. And the persistent ISR piece, uh, real quickly on that, we had an aerostat, which is a blimp. Literally, it's a, the Goodyear blimp on a 2,500 foot tether. And this was not just the Goodyear blimp. It had some high-tech sensors on it, some infrared and full motion video sensors. And these sensors were cued with acoustic sensors and whatnot all around the perimeter of the airfield. So if there was a pop bang or a fizz anywhere, around the airfield, the sensors on this blimp, which is 2,500 feet above the airfield, would slew in that direction, and they would see where the uh, the bad guys are. So we had to keep that blimp flying slow, though. We had to keep it flying. Mm -hmm. So we redesigned our instrument approaches to allow airplanes to take off and land while that blimp was in the air. Never did that before, but we had to do that. And I think that's another thing that kept us safe. God bless the guys who did that. It was amazing. They got it to work. They had to go to... Uh, Europe, they had to literally go to Europe and talk to the, uh, the guys who design instrument approaches, the Terps people, we call them, the yeah. terminal for, uh, approach procedure people. Yeah. The, the obstacle was an aerostat on the airfield. How can we get around that and still do a VOR approach or localizer approach? And they did that. But we had to keep that blimp in the air because we needed that persistent uh, surveillance overhead, looking at what's going on to keep us safe. And it, and it worked. Hey, I remember you telling me a story about that blimp where you would reel it into like the bottom of the base of the clouds and they'd start firing at it or something like that. And then you guys developed some kind of plan to come in and find who was firing at it, where they were firing at it and uh, put the hurt on them. Yeah. Well, it was the blimp had to come down because of uh, high winds. And um, when the weather got really bad, they would lower it to a, a lower altitude. But before we had any of these instrument approaches designed, they would 
bring the, the blimp all the way down to its mooring on the ground. And that would take, I don't know, I can't remember, 10 or 15 minutes to do that. It, so it took a while. And when that happens, everybody, the Baghdad's got, you know, it's, it's a big city. I can't remember the population, but it's well over a million. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Everybody sees the blimp come down. And these blimps have sensors and cameras, and there's guys you know, looking through the camera lenses, and they're looking at guys on roofs on cell phones pointing at the blimp as it goes down. Sure enough, uh, those, were, those were some of the bad guys, and we would get mortar and uh, rocket fire coming on the base when the blimp was in its mooring. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it took a while to figure that out. Uh, and we're not that bright, right? But after a while, we figured, hey, when the weather's bad, they start shooting at us. So if we can design yeah, yeah. instrument approaches to keep this blimp flying, let's see if we can do that. And we did. And our, our boss, Colonel Malone at the time, he was all, all for it. And that was one of the good things he did, actually. We, we got those procedures to work. Yeah. I remember you telling me that you had howitzers that you're dropping in on top of these guys. And yep. I think Apache helicopters that were flying around and special forces guys that are hunting these guys down. I mean, that is joint integrated fires for crying yep. out loud. When you've yep. got that kind of a group of folks working together and just for a, just for a balloon, man. Okay. Guys working together, don't trust each other. It, it's not going to work. You know, you yeah. got to, you got to build a level of trust. We did with our Iraqi counterparts. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there were, there was a commercial. I got to just tell you this story. When we first got into Baghdad, when I first got there, we weren't really welcome. I didn't feel a lot of love from the Iraqi people, but our, our, uh, our group commander at the time was a great guy. And uh, he said, Let, let's go talk to the Iraqi civil air defense, civil aeronautics authority, the FAA in Iraq. Let's go talk to these guys. They're in the civil terminal. We're not going to bring our guns. We're not going to bring our weapons. We're not going to bring our body armor. We're just going to go in uniform. I said, okay. And we did that. And we started building trust with the, our Iraqi uh, civilian counterparts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started doing these humanitarian relief missions. And some of these civilians, Slugo, I'm telling you, there were some really badly wounded civilians. We got them on um, airliners to take them to a Jordanian hospital. Jordanian Airways was one of the airlines. Mm-hmm. And the people that worked in the airport, there were a lot of people. It was a big airport. They saw all this. And toward the end of our tour, we would go into that building and talk to these Iraqi, you know, aeronautics officials. His office was on the top floor or whatever. We had to go through the terminal where mm-hmm. there's a lot of people. They started at, at, toward the end of our tour. They saw all these humanitarian relief operations. They saw how we cared for the people. They would come out from behind the kitchen and clap. I would see cooks clapping, giving us a thumbs up. Hey, the Americans are coming back. All right. They loved us. I it was just, it blew me away. I didn't expect that. And but, nobody uh, hears about that, Taz. It was amazing. Nobody's heard that story. Just, I mean, I'm not making that up. They literally, I saw a cook come out from behind the, you know, in the kitchen because he knew the Americans, everybody saying the Americans are coming. A few airmen would walk down the hallway and uh, the terminal building, the, the bag, you know, the luggage racks and all that stuff, the luggage carousels, people would come up and just clap and thumbs up. It was just amazing. Talking hundreds of people, not just onesies and twosies. There were hundreds of people in that terminal and they all gave us a thumbs up and they loved us. It was amazing. It's just something else. And because they trust you, they're also feeding you stuff too, aren't they? They're giving you information. They were. Yeah. They were sharing information, but it was, it was quite an experience. So I'll bet. Now, what's going on in Afghanistan at this same time? Because you're doing strategy in Iraq and Afghanistan at the same time, aren't you? Throughout the whole U.S. CENTCOM AOR, which includes uh, portions of Africa like Djibouti and uh, all throughout Southwest Asia, 
Iran included. Afghanistan was another fight. That was a, a whole different theater. The, the resources from an air power perspective were a lot scarcer. So we had to come up with a plan on how to maximize the use of resources to enable you know, the folks on the ground to do their job. We learned from a couple airmen in Baghdad how they used intelligence to capture bad guys on one of the main supply routes. It was called MSR Tampa. It came from the south. We called it MSR Tampa. It's just a two-lane highway. Uh, uh-huh. but convoys would go up and down MSR Tampa to supply the, uh, the forces. It was one of the highways in Iraq. There was senior airman Pena was uh, 10th Mountain Division, 2nd Brigade. He was one of the guys that came up with this scheme. He said, yeah, one of the ALOs, uh, Rock was his call sign. Funny name, his, his last name was Hudson, but he didn't look like Rock Hudson. <laughs> he was the 3rd Infantry Division ALO. He says, you got to talk to these guys from 10th Mountain. Come here, I got to meet Airman Pena. So he explained how he used intel to predict where the bad guys would show up to try to blow up our soldiers on the ground. And he was really effective along MSR Tampa, a senior airman came up with this concept. And I said, this is a great idea. So we took this idea to Afghanistan. This kid's only like 20, 22 years old then. Oh yeah, he was a young guy, but his concepts were right. They're right out of joint doctrine. Uh-huh. How to predict where the enemy's gonna show up based on what you've seen him do in the past, basically. That was the gist of it. Yeah, so, patterns of life, man, establish a pattern of life. We did that with the, in Afghanistan because we had the Highway 1 road was roughly about 3,400 kilometers. You know what Highway 1 is. It's a big yeah. dirt highway that goes around the perimeter of the country, basically. 3,400 kilometers of Highway 1, and there was IEDs going off, killing our soldiers. I mean, everywhere. A lot, right? So we took Senior Airman Pena's idea, and uh, we brainstormed with the guys in Afghanistan saying, hey, you guys got limited ISR resources. You don't have everything you want when you need it. But look at what this, look at what these airmen did for, uh, you know, second of the 10th here in, um, in Baghdad. You think you could do that on highway one to look at your 3,400 kilometers of roadway? Yes. They, yeah, they came up with a way to predict where the next IEDs would go off and position air, uh, air power assets somewhere in the vicinity to respond. Uh, it's like knowing where to, you know, put your bobber in the water to catch a fish. You got to be there at the right time of day, at the, at the right fishing hole, the right day of the week. We came up with that concept. Uh, we didn't. Uh, the guys in, in Afghanistan did. And we were able to predict where these IEDs were going to go off next. And it was really interesting. Out of the 3,400 kilometers of Highway 1, 70 of those kilometers involved like 80% of the IED attacks. There were 70 kilometers of the 3,400 that were most important as far as activity was concerned. That's not very much. No, when you look at it, but this is what they, they broke down this, this mission set. They used all the data they can figuring out when these bombs would go off. Lo and behold, all that data was recorded for over a year in some big computer somewhere, I think in Washington, DC. We don't know where that was. I'm just the guy coming up with ideas. I don't know where all the electrons go, but this data was recorded and they were able to correlate days of the week and times and predict with really good accuracy when the bad guys would try to blow our soldiers up. And if you, when you look at um, this, this took place in December of 07 through March of 08. And when you look at uh, November, December, January, February, March uh, in Afghanistan from 07 to 08, the amount of IED attacks dropped significantly because this concept of operations went into place. We learned all this from a senior airman in Baghdad. And we brought it to the operational level 
briefed the deputy CFAC in Afghanistan. Major General Muehlman was his name, a, a Dutch two-star. Great, mm-hmm. great guy. He loved it. And he told his guys to get on it and come up with a, a concept of operations. Yeah. They knew where to go to get the intel and predict where to put their assets. In fact, the numbers were pretty astounding. Uh, I was just looking at my notes before coming to your to this uh, meeting here today, Slogo. And it was something like 44. We had 44 tips. We called them tips uh, in December. Then up to like 150 in January of 08, meaning there's 150 activities going on where guys are trying to blow soldiers up. And by February, March, the numbers were like 250 approaching 300. So that's how successful we were. And uh, there was a lot of kinetic activity when we saw the bad guys digging holes or trying to blow soldiers up. You took out one month. When you look at the amount of soldiers killed in Iraq and in Afghanistan, remember 07 to March of 08, drop off. The, I, the roadside bombs dropped off significantly. I don't know what happened after that because I left, but yeah. that was one of the operations I was real proud of. I, you know, I have a similar story that I heard from somebody about that too. An AC-130 gunship guy, a uh, sensor operator was like going, hey, what's that disturbed dirt or whatever here in the middle of the road? He got really curious about it. He went back, told some of his bros about it and said, well, you know, the joint stars can kind of figure that out. And the, of course, some of our other national assets can follow these guys to and from. And believe it or not, they developed this whole plan of dealing with IEDs. I, I think it was in Baghdad, all because this one young captain saw this disturbed dirt and started asking questions. And what it was the disturbed dirt obviously is where they put the IED in the road. Mm-hmm. They went to the joint stars, the joint stars above us were like going, well, let us go back and look at our tapes. Oh, well, here's a car that's stopping here and here and here and here and here. Oh, wow. That correlates with exactly where you were marking the spot. The J stars guys were saying, Oh, well, we know where they went point of origin back here to this location, this house or whatever. And so what they did was they spent the special ops guys to the house. And sure enough, big, huge IED factory. They started developing that and said, okay, we got to put all this together. And they were able to go back and look at all of the previous data and take that sensor and see, okay, here's that signature. Here's that signature. They were even able to figure out when they had a a house around behind a guardrail because of the heat signature uh-huh. is really weird. The same thing happened, man. When they were able to go and figure all that out, you know, they'd see a car stop and the joint stars guys would see a car stopping, then stopping again, then stopping again, and then stopping again. And they'd be there for like five, 15 minutes, whatever. And they just, they just tagged that thing and then follow it back to wherever it came from. Yeah. And again, like you said, senior airman Pena or, you know, captain, <laughs> Captain Ghost Rider in the back of the freaking AC-130 gunship. And yeah. look how all that came together just because some guy asked a question. And Pena probably did the same thing. Well, wait a minute. What about this? It's it's all about asking the right questions. It is. Yeah, and it's about keeping aware of what's going on. Uh, General mm-hmm. North at the time had a great perspective of the theater. It just wasn't Iraq and Afghanistan. One of the big uh, victories that you'll never hear about uh, was the, the Dubai Air Show, late 2007, I believe, November, mm-hmm. December 2007. Dubai Air Show is kind of like the Paris Air Show. Yeah, it's a big deal in the Middle East, really big deal. 
big deal. Well, there was a bad guy that wanted to blow up the air show. He had like over 20,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer somewhere in a big city close to where the air show location was. That's part of U.S. CENTCOM's AOR. So how are we going to find this stuff, right? Yeah. So what we did, and ISR is so key in this, there's, there's multispectral analysis and multispectral yeah. capabilities yep. where you sniff out ammonium nitrates. I don't know how it works. We were able to do that and give the intelligence to the Emirati police who went out and actually got the guy. He wanted to blow up the air show. That was one of our big victories. Actually, we were so happy when that, yeah. you know, we got that guy and brought him yeah. to justice. It was an amazing story. Uh, but those, those techniques, multispectral analysis, the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, mm-hmm. you, you got to have a PhD level understanding of how to sequence these different techniques to be the most effective, most efficient. Yeah. And there's weapons school instructors at NELS that know how to do that. They knew, know how to do it from space-based assets. They know how to do it from air-breathing assets. Bringing these guys together, getting them to talk with the guys on the ground that or at sea that need these yeah. uh, capabilities. Um, a lot of the guys doing the maneuver on the ground don't even know these capabilities exist. But if we have a really good, strong liaisons with mm-hmm. the ground component, between the air component and ground component, and the naval component, good liaisons yeah. can figure out and bring yeah. these two capabilities together to help the uh, the commander achieve his objective. In this case, it was General North trying to keep that Dubai air, air show safe. And he, and he did. We were able yeah. to get the assets that they needed to uh, affect capture. That wasn't easy to do. That was hard to do, but we did it. It was an interagency effort and uh, it worked. And um, think about the trust that you created by doing that. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Hey, uh, you know, talk to us about the Battle of Musakela. Uh, Musakela. Why did you, why Musakela? Yeah. And and what happened there? Okay. Because this is something that yeah. you can find on Google or believe it or not, and Wikipedia, but nobody talks about it. It's one of those things like you were talking about. Nobody talks about this battle. Nobody talks about this battle. But I think the battle of Musa Kala was really, really important in Afghanistan for a whole bunch of reasons. And I know that you were involved in that. Musa Kala, Helmand province, uh, the Helmand River. Musakela is a town. At the time, I think it was about 15,000 people, civilians that lived in the town. It's in the middle of nowhere, right? It's in the middle of nowhere. But at the time, it was the Taliban's main center for finance. Musakela was their Wall Street, if you will. This is where all the funding for the, the opioid, the opium trade would go on, the drug trade, and this mm-hmm. is where they would get paid. So Musakela was really important. And uh, at the time, this was in November. December, all these battles took place. I think this was around Thanksgiving time in 07. Yeah. The, uh, I think it was CNN Europe or was it the BBC? I can't remember which station had a really good do- documentary. It could have been Al Jazeera as well. Al Jazeera mm-hmm. is a really good, a really good, uh, in my opinion, their journalism is brilliant. But they told yeah, the story. It was one of those, I can't remember, it may have been CNN Europe, but I, I just can't remember Sluggo. But they did a great documentary on the whole battle. And we did a two-week ISR soak before the battle, we identified uh, in the town where the 750 fighters would be. And that's a lot, 750, that's like a battalion, right? That's a lot of soldiers on the ground. And they're mixed that's up a lot of cards in a deck. <laughs> yeah, 15,000 civilians. And General North wanted to take, you know, to support the commander of uh, forces in Afghanistan. We, his name was Kam ISAF, commander of ISAF forces, um, International Security Assistance Force, Kam ISAF. 
how do you do that? So we did what we did in Baghdad. We had a two week ISR soak. We stacked the deck with space-based capabilities. We identified the rat lines. We identified all the positions in the town. We saw where they're digging in and we were expecting a really bloody fight. This was not going to be pretty. President Karzai, who was the president of Afghanistan at the time, wanted his Afghan army to take the town. He did not want NATO forces for obvious reasons. So this two-week ISR soak took place. We identified the battle space, had a really good feel for it. When the Afghan army started massing in the West and started moving on the town, those 750 Taliban fighters fled the town. They didn't even fight. Don't know why. Still don't know why they didn't fight. They just left the town. And we were able to, we were able to take the town of Musakela without firing a shot, without any civilians being killed. Amazing. Because we had Dimpy's uh, points of impact for JDAMs all around the town to take out these fighters. We were expecting a lot of casualties. Not a single civilian was killed slow though. That battle was over pretty much without a fight. The Afghan army went into town. They raised the Afghan flag in the middle of the town square. The 750 fighters fled to the north, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And that's where our special forces guys were waiting for them. And that's where the real battle took place. But <laughs> none of the civilians were killed. It was just, just an amazing story. It's Colonel Seth Brescher, who was the commander of the Joint Operations Center in Kabul. He was been there for a year. Colonel Brescher said that was the Battle of Musakela was my proudest, my proudest time there. Thanks to the guys at the air component that helped bring it to uh, fruition in a way that it did. It's just, I still can't believe that took place. But you can see the documentary on, uh, I think it's CNN Europe, if I remember right. It's I'll try and find it, Taz, and I'll link to it in the show yeah. notes for the for this uh, episode yeah. so it, that all the listeners can go to it and find it, okay? It's an hour-long documentary. It, it talks about the Afghan army moving into position, and, and they get all the credit, rightfully so. They were on the ground where they should mm-hmm. be. Doesn't say much about what the air component did, but that's okay. We weren't there to to get any glory. We wanted the Afghans to get their town back and they did. Amazing How town. are you going to use air power? You, that's a lot of dimpies, desired mean points of impact. In other words, where the bomb's going to hit for all of our listeners. That takes a lot of coordination and a lot of thinking also. And of course, collateral damage is one of the biggest things you got to think of too, because you don't want to blow down the house next to you. All right. And if I remember right, I think the 500 pound JDAMs were just coming online, weren't they? They were. And they had, they had JDAMs, different classes of JDAMs. And I'm an F-15C guy. So what do I know what I'm saying here? Right. But we, uh, we also had some inert uh, JDAMs, which means it's just a blivet that doesn't go boom. It's just the impact and the shock of uh, a weapon going over 600 miles an hour through a concrete roof of a building that, can stun people long enough for special forces to go in and take the guys out. Um, we, we had all kinds of weapons slow to it. just wasn't uh, JDAMs. The A-10s were there with their 30 millimeter guns. Mm-hmm. They, were, uh, they were amazing. Uh, but yeah, we needed, uh, we needed to concentrate that firepower when, when we needed it. And the B-1 was the bomb truck of the, the fight in Afghanistan. The B-52s weren't, yeah, the B-52s weren't there. They were there in the opening days after 9-11 back in yeah. 2001. Yeah. But uh, when I was there, the, the B1, we, the bone, as we yeah. called it, was affectionately also known as the bomb truck because they carried a lot of ordnance and they can hang 85, 500 pound bombs, 85 yeah. JDAMs. They can hang out. Something like that. It's they can, ridiculous. They can, they can dwell and they can stay on, on station for a significant amount of time. So we use those, uh, we use the B1s a lot in Afghanistan. Not so much in Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan was where all the kinetic fires were. 
in, in Iraq, we were more into capturing guys, at least the fights we were in. We were rounding guys up and not necessarily uh, wiping them out like we did in Afghanistan. See, we used the bone as a bomb truck, too, during the invasion. Uh-huh. And we put them on what we called X attack, on-call attack, Taz. The attack on the Mansoor district where we thought Saddam was, uh-huh. was, a, was a bone. Yeah. And what they did is they had JDAM penetrators in the front, the JDAM Mark 84 big boys in the middle, and they had the CBU-105 wind-corrected munition dispenser with sensor-fused weapons in the back. Wicked. And so you had this airplane up there carrying all these weapons, 24 of these weapons, of different kind sizes that you could do different things with. That was one of the great things about the bone. Oh, and it's got a sniper pod on it too. So it can gather intelligence and do marking and do all that kind of stuff and record all of that. And it was perfect for that. Was it efficient? Probably not. You know, it's soaking up gas, do all that kind of stuff, hanging out. Was it effective? Absolutely. Because whenever something popped up like a TST, like when they thought Saddam was in the Mansoor district, that thing raced up there and, and did the deed. So I know the the bone does a lot of great things. You know, the B-52 does too. I don't get me wrong, but but being able to put three different weapons inside the bone, have an offensive defensive guy, their whole job is just to sit there, look at the video, say, okay, we're going to use a, a penetrator here. We're going to use a wick mid here. You know, that was, that was uh-huh. a big deal, yeah. a big deal. What's it like flying the Eagle, man? Superman wears a cape. He's able to, you know, stop bullets, fly faster than a spinning bullet and jump over tall buildings. That's what it feels like when you're flying an eagle. <laughs> you are invincible. Nobody can touch you. I'm just, it's, it's quite a feeling. It's, it, it was an amazing experience. Got over 2,300 hours in the F-15. It was great. I was in four different operational F-15 squadrons in the Western Pacific and in uh, the States and um, met a lot of great people great Americans. Um, it, it was, it was quite a machine. It was a great airplane. You didn't even think about flying it. You f- thought more about employing the airplane as a weapon, optimizing its radar, looking for a weapon solution. You didn't even think about putting the gear down and maintaining airspeed. When you landed, when you shot an ILS down to minimums, you break out right at uh, 200 foot ceilings, a half mile or 301 was what the, uh, we normally flew down to, but yeah. Um, it, that was the men's for the air force at the time, 300 foot ceilings, one mile biz. You didn't even think about flying it. The airplane was that good and that easy to fly, but it was a difficult airplane to max perform and get the most out of, uh, as a weapon system. And that's where the big challenge was where to look with your radar, where to sort things out. How to identify guys, uh, listening to the communications going on, listening to the targeting plan, putting a nine or eight and a half, nine G brake turn when you need it with the lift vector in the right position. Those were really hard to do, but flying the airplane, it was great. I mean, it was just amazing. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. It was a great airplane. It was a very lethal uh, air to air machine as well. And it still is. Let's talk about lethality for just a second, because you flew in the first Gulf war with just sparrows and sidewinders. And then later on transitioned to, AMRAMs, Sparrows, and Sidewinders, didn't you? Yep. yep. You know, what kind of an impact did the AMRAM have on the way you employed the airplane, its lethality? Well, you could write a whole book on that, Slogo. Yeah. <laughs> it, it That's why uh, I asked the question. <laughs> yeah, you write a whole book on that. It increased its uh, effectiveness in combat. Oh, geez. I, I don't even want to give a number. I'm here to tell you, I would have had two kills. I would have had two MiG-29 kills if I had AIM-120s on my wing in the first Gulf War. I know that. 
I was carrying AIM-7 Sparrows, which is a great missile, uh, but the AMRAM, the AIM-120 has a lot longer uh, range. Yeah, it's significant capability. And it is an active, uh, has its own active radar seeker. So you don't need to illuminate the target with the mothership radar, the radar guarding missile to impact the target. In other words, the missile's on its own, it's autonomous. Once you fire it, you can forget it uh, and it'll find the target. We, we couldn't do that in the first Gulf War with the weapons we had. And I'm sure when that missile gets to a certain point, its target isn't going to escape. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you got to yeah, you got to get the uh, you got to fire it within the right parameters to optimize the yeah. uh, the ability and uh, maximize its lethality as a weapon. You just can't go out there and um, do it without a lot of thought behind pulling that trigger. Because when you pull that trigger, you're taking somebody's life, and that yeah. that life needs to end for a reason. A reason that's a lot bigger than me and you right now. Uh, but, you know, you got to think about all these things before you go into combat, in yeah, my yeah. opinion. It worked for me when I was uh, flying the Eagle. It's not a topic. Fighter pilots talk about flying airplanes, you know, and having a great time. They don't talk about heart-to-heart stuff very much, which is just as well. It's not who we are. It's not how the guys are now. Uh, yeah. My son is flying an F-16 in the Air Force. And they just don't talk about the, the human uh, aspect. What's, yeah, the human aspect of it. We're all in, the, in this together and we're here to serve something bigger than ourselves. Take a lot of pride in doing that. But yeah, the Gulf War, after that experience, flying in the airlines now, I'm talking with guys that flew F-111s in some of the missions that I escorted. I talked with um, an AC-130 pilot who knew Spirit 03. That was the AC-130 that was shot down. He knew the crew. And I flew with this captain over a four-day uh we fly four day trips. Um, yeah, yeah. Typically it's a four day, three to four days, uh, whatever, but you get to know this guy really well and then you never see him again, but you become best friends. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he was, he knew the crew of the AC-130 gunship that was shot down. He knew him real well. And, uh, I've had some great talks and it gives me a really good perspective looking back on these things and talking with these guys that I didn't know I escorted on missions, you know, over 30 years ago. And Isn't it's that amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing experience, but we still talk about it like it was yesterday. A member of that crew on that AC-130 gunship was a BYU grad. I knew him well. Yeah. Bill, Gr- Bill Grimm. Um, and that's the whole reason why they they don't fly during the daytime anymore was because of that one that one incident. For yeah. the listeners out there, AC-130 gunship during the first Gulf War got uh, shot down. Actually, the whole crew uh, went down with the airplane in the into the water, into the uh, Northern Arabian Gulf, killed everybody after it had been sighted down low by an Iraqi with a shoulder fired missile that uh, took it down yeah. and killed everybody on board. And it was call sign with spirit zero three. Yeah. I imagine you get to fly with some guys from all kinds of varying backgrounds. You know, some guys have no military experience. Some guys have a lot of military experience. It must be fascinating doing that. It's just amazing. The conversation came up. One guy in the cockpit and the flight deck asked me, how come, you know, Spirit Airlines is here flying. We mentioned Spirit 03. Well, there's Spirit yeah. Airlines flying now, but the, their call sign in the air is Spirit Wings. And the guy looks at me and goes, how come they call themselves Spirit Wings? Why don't they just call themselves Spirit? Because they're Spirit Airlines. And I said, <laughs> because Spirit is the call sign of the AC-130 gunship out of Hurlburt Airfield that, I, that I'm familiar with. So yeah. I think, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not, I don't make up all the rules, but I'm pretty sure that's why Spirit Airlines uh, the radio call sign name. Spirit Wings and not Spirit because the AC-130 still use Spirit. Yeah, they do. And believe it or not, you know what? During the war in Afghanistan, during Anaconda, 
they were using the call sign Grim, Grim, which was oh, my man. buddy, which was my buddy's last name. Yeah, so it's uh, it's been great. It's been a great experience. Uh, I'm flying now at a local glider port, and some of the I'm one of the young guys. I'm 60 years old, but I'm one of the young guys at the glider field. Uh, a lot of these guys uh, are old pilots. A lot of them are engineers with a pilot's license. They worked in the space program. In Sluggo, these guys are in their 70s and 80s. I'm not making this up. They're 70s and 80-year-old men in their 80s. The oldest guy there is in his early 90s. And God bless them all. They're flying airplanes and they, they're healthy. They're, they're loving life. And I look at aviation now as I age. You know, I was a young fighter pilot with my hair on fire years ago. Now I'm looking at, you know, what am I going to do when I leave the airlines? I want to be that 80-year-old glider instructor teaching some 17-year-old kid how to thermal and find lift yeah. in a sailplane. I want to be that guy because there's guys like that, great Americans with a lot of experience. Yeah. I want to thank Taz for being on, but he and I go back a long ways. And during those intense times, you form a camaraderie with people around you. Taz has become a lifelong friend. We've talked to each other as we were deployed at all kinds of different locations. And he was even a student at the Joint Forces Staff College in one of my seminars. I think one of the big lessons learned that Taz wanted to share with us was go after it. They didn't sit down and hunker down in their buildings. They went out and fought the enemy found them, fixed them, and finished them, as the Army would say. I guess that's something I tell all of you out there as a life lesson, too. Be proactive. Get involved. You go to war with the Army you have, not the Army you want. Take the opportunity to use all those tools that you have and conquer the problem. Punch it in the face, kick it in the you-know-where, and get it the job done. Special thanks to Wall Pilot once again for being the sponsor of this show. Custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. And I'll have some F-15s in the show notes that you can purchase off of Wall Pilot's website. This and previous episodes are all found at my website, markhasera.com. And please go and subscribe and share these episodes with your friends and loved ones. On next week's show, I interview a gal who flew F-16s, was an instructor in T-38s, but she also flew with the Air Force demonstration team, the Thunderbirds. And we're going to listen to her tell us what her lessons learned flying combat missions in the Middle East and flying with the Thunderbirds. Thanks again for listening in today, and I hope you have a great week.